0: All right, you can be seated. My job, like anyone else who preaches from this pulpit, is to take the words that you just heard read and to press them into your mind and your soul in a way that you understand them and you believe them and you're able to leave here and go live them. Uh, If you were listening to what Tracy read, you would have heard Some very heavy words, very sharp words. So let's just pray together as a family before we press into unpacking these together. Father, all scripture is profitable. It is helpful. It serves to instruct us and correct us and to train us in righteousness. You have something to say to our family today. I pray that my words would only help in that direction, and any words that would keep us from that direction would be forgotten, but the pure milk of the word would be drank and and to our benefit this morning. And I pray that we would love what you love and hate what you hate and hear what you have to say. So give us hearts that are postured to do that in this time, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, um, we're going to start with a couple of phrases that you would have heard in Bostonian vernacular, I'll drop them up on here. Let me start with these. Okay, number one, it's an either or. It's an either or. How many have have heard that kind of phrase before when talking about something? So sometimes in life, there's two realities and they are what we would call mutually exclusive. You can have one or you can have the other But you cannot have both at the same time in the same sense. So some of these are very obvious to you. For example, the question, are you pregnant? That is an either or right there. There is no such thing as sort of pregnant, a little bit pregnant, I'm kind of pregnant. Either you are or you are not. You feel that? Uh, How about will you marry me? Grace and I got engaged at 40 Steps in Nahant. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but it was just us and the ocean and God and some seagulls, and I pulled out the ring and asked the question, and that was a fork in the road that was only going in one of two directions. It was an either-or, yes, or some variation of no. You know, maybe I'm not sure, what did you say, I'm sorry, but it's either yes or no. Um... Kelly's, when you're ordering your kid's meal for your children, fries or rings, it's an either or. Kelly and I were booking seats, we're going out to Indianapolis this month together and uh, we had a choice, do you want to sit on the window or on the aisle? Country music, hip hop, it's an either or. I know they've been trying to blend those but it doesn't work either or. It's an either or. Okay? Sometimes we say this, it's a both and. Have you heard that before? Oh, it's a both and. We say this when there's two things that appear to be mutually exclusive and they seem to not really be able to go together, but actually they can and they do You just have to work at figuring out how how do these two things fit. If you want to blow the mind of the person taking your order at Kelly's when they say fries or onion rings, just go, yes. (laughs) So you just introduced a both and into an either or and they had to to work on that. Kelly is a high harmony child, so she's awesome with the both and. So she came up with a both and for that either or. She said, well, how about if I sit at the window when we're taking off and then you sit at the window when we're landing? She somehow made that a both and. Did you know that Eminem and Elton John sang a duet together? So there's a million reasons why that should be an either or, but somehow they pulled off a both and. All right, God's world and... Your Bible, the scriptures, are filled with both of these. There are either ors in there. And in postmodern American culture, we hate the either ors. We hate when God says yes or no. But your Bible has a bunch of, it's either this or that. But then your Bible also has a ton of both ands. Some are what we would call paradoxes. Uh, Two things hold together together. And it's a mystery for us to kind of figure it out. What is ground zero for the most paradoxical both and in your Bible? It's the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So God is one and God is three. And somehow both of those hold together. It is divinely, beautifully, breathtakingly complicated, we would say but it's a both-and. And then we work hard to find the words to express this truth. Oh, he is one in essence, but three in persons. He is a unity with diversity. And volumes are written trying to figure this both-and out, and we say, it's okay. This, this is a both-and. If we try to flatten the nature of God and say it's an either or we deny the clear teaching of Scripture and we we lose the glory of what it means for God to be God, we have to be okay with this sometimes. Faith and works is the same way. You could be reading your Bible in the book of Romans and it says, justification is by faith alone, not by works of the law. Then you keep reading into James and you see, Abraham was justified by his works. And you go, which is it? Because it sounds like it's got to be one or the other. And then you work on it and you say, no, no, no. Justification is by faith alone, apart from any works. Our righteousness is rooted in the work of Jesus, not us. But that faith is always evidenced by, packed with good works. So in a sense, you can't separate those two. It's a both and. What a good, doctrinally sound church does with you is that it teaches you to live in the tension of the both and when that's where the scriptures lead you. Okay, in today's text, we come across one of those situations where the text seems to be saying something that doesn't jive with the other texts in your Bible. Here are the two doctrines that I'm talking about today perseverance, perseverance of the saints, and apostasy, or the potential for someone to fall away. How do these two go together? All right, let's talk about the perseverance of the saints. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. This is basically the biblical truth that once Jesus got you, he got you. He got you all the way down. That God sets his electing grace on us, and he sees to it, that we hear the gospel and believe the gospel and experience new birth, and all of those church words, shuns, justification, sanctification, adoption, regeneration, glorification, take it to the bank. It's a guarantee that when you belong to Jesus, you belong to him forever. Your future is super bright and fully secure. You will persevere to the end because Jesus has you. Let me read some of these verses just so we feel this side before I get into Hebrews. Just hear this with me. John 10, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You feel that? John 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will not cast out this is the will of him who sent me that i would lose nothing of all that he has given me who all right romans 8 i am sure i am certain positive that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities no rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. You feel that? One more, Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, anchor for the soul. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Of Christ Jesus. Okay, there is a whole theology out there that denies those verses in your Bible and insists that your salvation ultimately hinges on and hangs on your performance. I was discipled into that idea that on the cross Jesus did something awesome for me, and now it was up to me to earn my keep with Jesus. And working from that place of uncertainty is exhausting. You know the pollen count that you can read on your iPhone now? Ooh, where's the pollen today? That's what your salvation is like. Like, how am I doing? Am I I okay or am I not okay? I'm serious. For me, the question, are you a Christian, was tricky to answer. Because I would be like, on Monday and Tuesday, definitely I was a Christian. On Wednesday, ah, like by 8 p.m., I wasn't so sure. On Friday, absolutely not. There's no way Jesus would have had me on Friday. But then like on Saturday night, I was coming back around. You feel that? This is the theology behind perpetual altar calls, just constantly telling you it's time to rededicate your life to Jesus. There are Christians who have come to the altar like in triple digits in their life. This doctrine says, stop it, stop it. Just breathe, rest in your justification. Jesus has you, you will persevere. He is never letting you go. But then we come across a text like today, which appears on the surface to say something super different. And we read about this. Apostasy, the potential for falling away. This idea that sometimes people start with Christ, but they don't finish with Christ. Sometimes the saints don't persevere. So which is it? Which is it? All right, let's work the text and see how this all comes together. Remember that what we're learning through is a letter that was written to Christians to a church that was growing sluggish, apathetic in their following of Jesus, falling from devotion to him. And so the writer is doing everything he can to change their trajectory. They started to fade, and he's saying, I'm trying to put you back on course with the gospel. The book includes some fierce warnings. That's why we called the series Jesus. No, no, seriously. This is serious, Jesus seriously, because these warnings are a means of God's grace to shake you to say, am I on the narrow path that leads me toward Christ? Today you have heard the third of five warnings, and it's the most intense. I'm going to put the first phrase up on the screen so you can see it. I'm I'm pulling the first sentence to the end so that I can frame this easier for you to hear in the sermon. So, The writer said, the Spirit said, in the case of those who have, and then he gave five descriptors. Let's feel them. One, once been enlightened. Two, tasted the heavenly gift. Three, shared in the Holy Spirit. Four, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Five, tasted the powers of the age to come. He's referring in the third person to this other group, not his readers, this other group of people, and he gives a five fold description. And a question comes up immediately when you see these words So, are these Christians? Are these not really Christians? Are these almost Christians? Are these sort of Christians? Are these kind of Christians? Are these real, genuine, justified saints in the truest sense of the word, or is something else going on in here? All right, some people read these words and they say, absolutely, yes, they were Christians in the fullest, capital C sense of that word. And they would go down it with you and they would say, look, enlightened means born again. The light has shone on their hearts. Tastes means fully experienced. You ever been to Costco on a Saturday and there's 16 million people there, but they're giving away free food, and you're like, ooh, I didn't even have to buy lunch. I didn't even have to sneak like an almond bar out of the fridge and eat it, because look at all this free food. So you know they give you that little taste of like the new banana kiwi smoothie, and it's just a little sip, but that's all? That's not what this word means. Taste means to like experience it fully all the way down. They would say heavenly gift means salvation. The seal, sharing in the Spirit, that's the sign of the new covenant in the book of Acts. The Spirit has come to a people. The word of God is the gospel. The age to come is the gospel era. So they were true Christians in every single possible sense of that word. Okay? Some people read this and go, no, that, that's not necessarily what this is saying. They were definitely members of the church for a time, of the visible church, but that church is different than the invisible church of the company of the elect, capital S, saints. Two different things. And then they would get into the weeds of the text and give you their defense. So Wayne Grudem's a theologian and he said, there's 18 ways the author could have said they're really Christians. But he didn't use any of those 18 phrases in here. So then I just want to give Wayne a hug and say, I don't know about that argument from silence, but you get what he's saying, right? It could have been clearer. There was different ways to say true Christian. John Owen was a Puritan theologian, and he said, it's clear that these people have definitely converted from Judaism to Christianity and received special blessings, But it's also clear that they are not true Christians because the text never mentions faith or believing. Okay? John Piper goes to verse 8, which Tracy read, and he says, this metaphor of the land needs to frame your understanding of this. And when he gets to that part of this text, it says, the rain fell on this land and some of it never bore genuine fruit, only thorns and thistles. And so, it wasn't fruit for a little while, but then thorns and thistles. It was blessings from God, but no response. And so, that should define for us our understanding of this. Even later in the book of Hebrews, we read that he says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firmly to the end. Okay, now we could go back and forth all day on which is it, true Christians, not true Christians. My sense is this, it's the wrong question to ask. That the Spirit is not primarily making a point here about the doctrine of election or the technicalities of what a Christian is or isn't. This is not a treatise on what you might want it to be. There's something else going on here. This is the best way that I can phrase what I would like you to see in this description. Here it is. These people had legitimate gospel experiences of some sort. They had Christ clearly proclaimed to them. They have had the gospel unpacked for them with all of its beauty and all of its implications from voice to their ears. They have seen the kind of community that the gospel births. They were immersed for a season in real, live gospel grace. They tasted what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, illustration. For two weeks in 1997, I was not an American. I went with Grace with her father, Giuseppe Minnicopelli, and her mother Giuseppina Minnicopelli to the motherland, to Italy. They invited me into this exotic vacation to Italy. Rome, Venice, Milan, Rimini, we had two weeks in Italy together. I experienced fully what it meant to be an Italian for those two weeks. I literally ate dinner at this long table that there was thirty people at. It was outside in the warmth of of an Italy summer. Uh, you know the videos that you watch of chefs cooking in Italy? I like lived it. I was there. The vegetables were just taken from the garden. The mozzarella cheese had like just been churned. I went and patted the cow that got like milked to get the cheese real Italy. I played volleyball on the beach with a bunch of dudes in Speedos. (laughs) You can't get more Italian than that. I slept in a room in the summer in Italy with no air conditioning at all, none. And they were like, what's wrong with you? This is just how we do it. I didn't hear or read English for two weeks. And I, I tried to happily participate in the whole thing. You feel that immersion? That was the experience that God gave to these people. To contextualize it here, just imagine God giving someone the grace to be a part of a great church for a season of their life. A faithful minister of the gospel. Community saturated by the graces of Christ. And at the center of it all, is the clear proclamation of your sin and Jesus' blood and the forgiveness of your sin and the new life that is offered in Christ. At some point, these people even raise their hand and say, I'm in. I'm with you. I want to follow Jesus too. When's the baptism? How do I start giving? What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? I want to be a part of what's happening in the life of this church. That's this. The best way I read it was they had participated in the privileges and the benefits of the gospel fully. And you would have thought they're in forever. They're in forever. But then comes the sixth description, and it is like a horror movie packed into five English words. Remember, when you read your Bible, if you don't get jolted, you're not reading it rightly. A horror movie in the next five words that I'm going to put on the screen. After all of this, we read this. And then have fallen away. And then have fallen away. The word fallen away here in English can be deceiving. This is not just a matter of falling into sin or having a season where you backslide or your heart grows soft. This is not, ah, I looked at porn again on Saturday night or, ah, I lost it on my kids again or I just went on a gossip spree and I just like nailed everybody in the church within 20 minutes. No. This is, and I love that John Calvin says it like this, the apostle is not speaking here of theft, perjury, murder, drunkenness, or adultery, but he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel when a sinner offends not God in some one thing here or there, but entirely renounces his grace. In other words, this is a deliberate choice. This is a line drawn in the sand. You can take Jesus, you can take his gospel, you can take that Bible, you can take his spirit, and you can shove it, all of it. I reject and I renounce what has been declared to me, what I have experienced in this church, in this community. I reject what I've been told about Christ and his cross, I'm out. That's this word. Any Shark Tank fans in here? You know when they've heard the pitch and then they go, for these reasons, I'm out. Take that infinitely more serious and that's this here. I'm out. Remember in the 70s when Vietnam veterans were coming back And they so renounced what had happened to them and the injustice of that war that they were taking their medals and throwing them over that that wall, drawing a line in the sand that day and saying, I renounce the deeds that I did to earn these medals. I renounce that we were even in that war. I am done. Does everyone feel the intensity of that? Rank that up infinitely. And that's the force of these horrible words that they have done this with Christ. And the Spirit says something terrifying that when someone does that after experiencing grace in a legitimate way, there is no going back. All right, hear these words with me. It is impossible. to restore them again to repentance since they're re-crucifying or crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. All right, so feel the weight with me of what apostasy is if you've never thought about that word. After the first time that Jesus was crucified, repentance was offered to who? Everyone. Everyone. If you read those first gospel sermons, the apostles literally say, you crucified Jesus, but today you can come to Jesus and find forgiveness of sins. That was the first gospel sermon in the book of Acts. In a sense, in the first crucifixion of Jesus, nobody really knew what was going on. You remember, Jesus even prayed from the cross. What? Father, forgive them they don't realize what they're doing but this is what apostasy is apostasy is knowing exactly what was happening on the cross knowing exactly who it was that was being murdered on the cross knowing that it was your sin in part that caused the cross And then going, totally fine with me. Totally good with it. That's what apostasy does. I deny the glory and the beauty and the infinite worth of the Jesus who was crucified. I deny the necessity of the forgiveness of my sins. I deny the love of God that put Christ on the cross I deny the grace of the gospel. I see it, I've heard it, and I would put Jesus back on the cross again if I could. And the Spirit says that when a heart gets to that place, that it is drawing that line in the sand, and it is saying those things out loud. When someone has experienced the privileges and the benefits of the gospel, and they take their stand against it, There's no means of coming back. Re crucifying Christ is putting to an end the means of God's grace to you. They had their shot. The cross was brought into view. They did not fall to their knees, but they folded their arms and they nodded their heads and said, Crucify him again if need be. Now, when we say that things are impossible in the Bible, we always mean that in relation to how God has declared that things will work. So in Hebrews, we see impossible four times. It's impossible for God to lie. That, that's never going to happen. It's impossible for the blood of goats and lambs to really take away sin. That's never going to happen. That's not how this works. It is impossible for you to please God without faith. That's impossible. That's not how this works. And here the Spirit is saying, it is impossible for you to come to that place of awareness and then to apostatize, to have any means of grace or coming back. We can never forget that even repentance is a gift of God. It is not something that we strum up in ourselves. He gives us repentance. And that means that in His justice, As he sees fit, he can withhold that repentance. And sometimes people get to a place of such hardness that repentance is not coming again. Now, does this truth call into question the reality of the perseverance of the saints? No. We're holding both of these together this morning. What it does mean is that just being a member of the visible church Just being around the glories of the gospel, just nodding your head at a sermon, does not mean that you persevere to the end. Here's the clearest way that I can say it, and I'll personalize it so that you can feel it appropriately. So, if in the coming years, I, me, I commit apostasy, and I fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted fully of the word of God's grace. And it will not be because I have not seen the glorious grace of God on display in the life of Jesus' people. I have seen you guys. It will not be because my eyes were not enlightened to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If over the next five, 10, 20 years, Matthew Cruz begins to cool off spiritually and lose interest in gospel things and becomes more fascinated with making money or building up a reputation or any of the things in the world. If I buy into the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating or my kids can just fend for themselves... Or the church of Jesus Christ is just a joke and a waste of my time. And if I start blogging and tweeting and podcasting heresy and sounding like Rachel Evans or Brian McLaren or Benny Hinn or Madonna, and that's the platform that I take, then know that the truth is this. Matthew Cruz was terribly deceived for like, 44 years of his life. You should not say the perseverance of the saints must be untrue. You should say his faith was not real. His sticking with grace was just a matter of convenience or a temporary passion or compliance with social pressure. His love for his kids and his fatherhood was just self-interest. Even his preaching to me was just because he liked to hear himself talk, but Christ was not where he belonged in Matt's life, at the center. That's why this happens, and this text is given to us to say to us in the most uncomfortable and starkest of terms that we might hear it and go, that happens? Well, that is never happening with me. In other words, the big idea of these words of the Spirit is that you would feel this this morning. Perseverance of the saints is real, but apostasy is real too. And by God's grace, I am never going there. That's what the Spirit wants to do in your heart through these words. This is not meant to stir you to anxiety but to vigilance. You feel the difference? Please tell me you feel the difference. It is not meant to strip you of the peace of your eternal security. It is meant to strip you of any false security. You feel the difference? In other words, assurance is never meant to foster presumption and laziness. Assurance is meant to foster wonder and energy. Do you feel the difference? Perseverance and apostasy, both and in their right senses. And the apostasy is supposed to shake us so that we hold fast to perseverance and throw ourselves behind the promises of God. All right, so my question is, Where are you at in a text of scripture like this? If you're here this morning and you've never even believed the gospel for the first time, man, we are so glad that you are here. And if you are just starting to become enlightened to, wait a minute, this Jesus thing isn't a joke. Jesus is somebody. And this is the first season of your life where you're seeing your sin and your need and the provision of the cross, come on in to the grace of Jesus. If you have believed the gospel and your faith is there, but it's just weak and it's fragile and your life is filled with sin, don't panic today. God's got you. He's got you. You are His. And we're going to lean in with you toward the end. But if you are here today, and you think that just because you come to church, and you nod your head during sermons, and you write some checks, and if somebody asked you, which religion are you, you would go, uh, where's the Christian box? That's me. If you think that, because of those surface level things, you're good, and there's no way that your heart would ever grow so dull and then so hard that you would renounce Christ and walk away from him? Don't be fooled. Tasting the benefits and the privileges of the gospel is not the same as going all in with the Jesus of the gospel. And so what I want you to hear, what the Hebrews definitely needed to hear was, apostasy is real but don't let it be you. Then there's one more verse that wraps its gospel arms around us and you desperately need to hear this and I need to hear it. And it's not just that we're supposed to go, not me, but I want you to now hear the Spirit of God agreeing with that jump of your soul and saying, you're right, not you. If you've heard my words today and your soul goes, but not me, Jesus, by his Spirit, says, not you. Here's how the Bible says it. Though we are speaking in this way, super heavy this morning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. One time in Hebrews that he tells them explicitly, You are loved by God. It's the only time Beloved is in there, and it's like perfect timing, isn't it, to hear these words at the end of this doctrine or this thought. Yes, apostasy is real and awful, but that's not what God intends for you. He's got you. I am sure of better things for you and We are called to respond to that grace together this morning. All right, so let's think and pray about that together. Father, life is fast, and it's not a joke. You are there. We suppress that truth, but it's just plain and evident for all to see. Christ has come and Christ has died And if we are in this room and we have heard the announcement of that gospel, I pray that it would terrify us to ever think that we might draw in a line in the sand and stand against Christ. No, 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 that's not us. Jesus, we fly to your cross today and we fall on our knees and we confess our sin and we put our trust in you and we throw ourselves fully behind all that you are for us. I pray that even the thought, the flicker of apostasy in our hearts would energize us, would encourage us, would move us toward making use of the means of your grace, that not one of us would be lost, that every one of us would persevere to the end as you promised that we would. Would you help us understand how these things go together and walk out of here and live them Together, I pray. Amen. Always, out of the preaching of the Word, we come down to the table.